You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hello, this is Dan Linna. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guest today is Danielle Benecke, a senior associate at Baker McKenzie. Danielle is admitted to practice in both California and Australia. She focuses her practice on intellectual property and technology law. Danielle is also a part of Baker McKenzie's global R&D team, serving as an innovation champion. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Great. I look forward to our conversation. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First, welcome to our new sponsor, Headnote. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. We'd also like to thank Thomson Reuters. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge. Danielle, let's jump right in. And can you, first of all, just tell us a little bit about your role at Baker McKenzie? Sure. Um, So thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, Yes, so I'm a senior associate in our global IP and technology practice. I'm based in our Palo Alto and San Francisco offices. So as you mentioned, I'm a California attorney, but I'm also admitted in APAC, uh, and that's actually where I began my career with the firm. So that kind of, that legal part of my practice involves acting in IP disputes, product counseling, handling IP aspects of transactions, managing global IP portfolios. Uh, And naturally, I do quite a bit of work with our West Coast tech clients, particularly in that digital media and copyright space. And then increasingly, uh, we're doing quite a bit of work advising clients around the development and use of artificial intelligence. And then, as you mentioned, on top of that, I'm part of our firm's global R&D team serving as what we call an innovation champion or an innovation ambassador. Well, and can you tell us just a little bit about your journey to landing in this in this role? And, and, and I actually met you at a Stanford Codex event, and I was really impressed with your discussion there about some of the ways in which Baker McKenzie is thinking about innovation and artificial intelligence, which we'll get into that. But can you kind of tell us a little bit about your journey to um, doing the things that you're doing right now at Baker McKenzie? Sure. Uh, so I, I started my career with the firm uh, right out of law school uh, in Australia, and I worked uh, with our IP and technology practices down there. But I've always done a lot of work with West Coast clients, and in particular, West Coast technology clients. So as part of a a firm scholarship program, I had the opportunity to come out to Stanford and do my master's there, focusing on law science and technology. Uh, And then after that, was admitted in California, and there was a real business need uh, for a lot of our clients to have someone like me out here. 
and then from that, you know, that involvement in our innovation program really naturally flowed. It was kind of around the time that I was at Stanford that we had, there was a lot of work being done internally uh, around our innovation strategy, developing it, thinking about uh, how we would move forward with certain aspects of it. And so I kind of became involved in that fairly quickly um, upon landing in the ground out here. Great. Okay. Well, so let's jump right in. And uh, I really want to take a deep dive into some of the things about artificial intelligence. You recently wrote an article about that. Uh, but first, can you kind of just from a big picture perspective, tell us a little bit about Baker McKenzie's overall innovation strategy? Yeah. So so to us, this whole concept of innovation is really about adapting our services so that we can better anticipate and meet our clients' needs as, as they're rapidly changing. And so what we've done with the strategy is to structure our innovation investments into three timeframes, the now, the near, call it one to two year term, and then the future, which given the pace of change, we're not naive enough to put beyond the three to five year mark. So what we're doing is we're playing in each of those three time horizons. And the first of the three is really about business optimization, doing what we do now better. On the technology front, we're buying best-in-breed tech and deploying it in actual solutions. We're pretty much testing everything that's out there. But we're also focusing on things like process management, service design, alternative pricing, new staffing models. Uh, And then the second piece is around designing better services. So we're partnering with our clients. We're changing the ways that we interact with them. Uh, And that's about helping them figure out emerging needs and solve some of their more complex problems. So we have an internal accelerator for these kind of ambitious, larger scale projects. And that's across our practice groups and our industry groups globally, where we're co-creating services with those clients. And then the really creative stuff, uh, the really exciting stuff is on on that third, slightly longer time frame where we're partnering not only with our clients, but with the whole legal ecosystem. And that includes tech vendors, universities, VC funds, NGOs, everyone to think really expansively about what the law firm of the future looks like. This now part, when you're talking about optimizing legal services delivery, I mean, how how would you describe what that looks like? Yeah, um, I mean, to take a few concrete examples on the tech front, so uh, we're using new tools in our global e-discovery and investigations practices like Relativity and UX. We've rolled out products like eBrevia, which is kind of came out of our analysis of market-leading contracts analytics tools. Um, And then we're trying out things like data visualization using software tools like Tableau. So that's kind of the, the now using different technology tools to optimize what we do. Then when we dig into things like legal project management, we're boosting our legal project management team around the world. So they're the people who work on those large-scale and complex matters. So we're trying to identify efficiencies, trying to do a better job at tracking budgets, reducing costs. Um, And we've actually had some fairly strategic hires around that. So bringing in David Cambria, who um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know as godfather of legal tech, Uh, people like Casey Flaherty, uh, Jayam, who's working on our pricing strategy. And then on top of that, we have our global operations centers. So for many years, we've had one in Manila. 
uh, more recently in Belfast, and then again, much more recently in Tampa and, and Buenos Aires. So those are centers where we have global professional services support teams that help us handle larger transactions, litigation, IP portfolio management, among other things. And so we're really kind of boosting these teams that support more efficient, higher quality delivery of of things like large-scale document reviews, multi-jurisdictional surveys, due diligence exercises, and the like. Interesting. So, you know, I think one of the things that another thing related to this that is interesting is a lot of these podcasts have been talking with people like how they define innovation, what it really means. And I've been hearing more and more people saying that, oh, innovation is a buzzword, we should stop using it. I guess I don't agree with that. I mean, I I kind of think we should figure out what it is and define it, and it can still be a meaningful word. But I mean, I don't know. What what is your thought on that? I mean, has it become meaningless, or is it important to think about what makes something actually innovation versus other improvements for efficiency, let's say, for example? Yeah, I mean, so we've definitely had a lot of conversations around that with both our clients and internally. And on the client side, I think the really interesting part is there's a real spectrum of how they perceive of innovation, how they approach what's going in the market. There's a massive spectrum of sophistication, particularly on the technology side of things. So there are lots of clients of ours who, for none of this is innovation at all. You know, they see this stuff being hyped in the press, yet they are in their businesses heavily research-led and truly innovative. So a lot of what they're seeing seems a little bit old hat for them. And so for those clients, you probably want to sometimes avoid using the word innovation. Um, We're talking about this stuff as compared to the stuff that they're advising on that's coming out of their businesses. But then there are other types of clients who are really looking for guidance on how to navigate the changes within their own legal departments. So for whom all of this might be quite new and unfamiliar and seem fairly innovative whose businesses maybe are overall comparatively less tech-driven. And I think the great thing is that we can actually have conversations with all of these types of clients. We can be responsive to all of their needs. So I think, I mean, I, I think the conversation around do we use the word innovation, what exactly does innovation mean, it kind of differs in terms of the context, really. To us personally, it's really about adapting what we do so we can better meet our clients' needs. And for each client the approach might be completely different. Well, so what extent do you think it is, um, in your experience, is it really the clients who are the ones who are driving this? And now maybe your firm might be a little bit different, or maybe even you, particularly given your role, being much more proactive about driving the conversation. I mean, but what's your impression, like the extent to which clients are are really driving this conversation across the industry? Yeah, I think it depends. It really goes from client to client. So there are we have lots of clients who are approaching us and saying, we want to know more about what's happening in the market. Can you tell us what does the future look like? And I actually think one of the most interesting things that's coming out of those conversations, particularly the ones with the more sophisticated technology clients, is what resonates the most with them when we're talking about where the industry is going, um, especially when it comes to things like AI. So clients say to us, you know, where are things going to be in that kind of longer three to five year time frame? And the answer that we give is we actually don't know, but we do have a structure that's designed to figure that out. And there's really um, sophisticated companies tell us that none of the competitors they speak with, they're comfortable giving the answer, but they, they know it's true. 
ask any of their business leaders on AI or their top machine learning researchers and experts. And I've seen a couple speak at, at Stanford recently, and they will say the same thing. The other thing I, I wanted to mention um, is that we've actually done quite a bit of work with clients to survey the innovation needs of their in-house lawyers as well as their legal ops teams. And the interesting thing we're finding with that is that the legal tech priorities of legal ops, which are becoming an increasingly important player in terms of law firm sourcing, can be very much at odds with those of the in-house lawyers who have managed the firm relationships traditionally. So we've done a few surveys recently where legal ops professionals indicated that leveraging existing tech is a very high priority but thinking about things like machine learning is much lower priority, but we've seen the reverse being the case for the in-house lawyers. Yeah. So how do you balance that? I mean, I think that in essence, in part at least, goes back to the question about what is innovation. And you know, frequently I think about the continuous improvement work that needs to be done and that traditionally hasn't been done in law, and that may not be sexy, or thinking about it in terms of Clayton Christensen, it's kind of like the sustaining innovation that hasn't been happening. And then there's this disruptive or potentially disruptive innovation. And a lot of times people just want to jump there without doing the kind of laying the foundation and, and the improvement work that needs to be done, including on processes and thinking about project management. Does that kind of fit with the way you see things? Or Yeah, I mean, I actually think that that is where things like design thinking come in and should come in. Mm-hmm. Because really at the end of the day, what we should be focusing on when we're looking at doing better at what we do is what our clients need. And so we, for example, um, have done a lot of work trying to use design thinking methodologies to help us sharpen our focus on those client needs to make sure that everything we're doing around kind of this innovation theme is really focused around our users, which are our clients. And one thing we've actually observed in that kind of ongoing mission to test and evaluate the best of all the tech that's out there is that vendors can quite often push solutions without fully articulating the problem solved or the need addressed. And, and firms definitely make the same mistake too. And so that's, that's why we've invested in things like rolling out design thinking methodology. So we're actually the first law firm to do that on a global scale. And the idea behind that is to challenge the legal industry's traditional focus on capabilities and really acknowledge that technology is not always the answer, it's only part of it, and that at its core, innovation and service design should really be about having that focus on client needs, thinking about the full range of solutions, which might be technology, which might be a combination of technology and something else, or might be something different again. So we've really kind of been working hard to infuse those methodologies into what we do day to day but then also use it to structure our approach to larger scale projects. Well, so the the rollout of design thinking across the firm globally is is very interesting. I think one of the things I've heard from a lot of folks is that they've been involved in the design thinking process and, and they've found it valuable in a lot of ways, but they've had trouble like thinking about how to actually take it the next step to have an impact to actually produce the deliverables and the change or the problem solving they want to see. Is there anything you'd point to kind of concretely the way that you've maybe used it at Baker McKenzie to solve a problem for a client or where it was really instrumental? And, and helping you improve service delivery or even laying the groundwork to using technology in a better way? Yeah. Um, so I think we're using it in two ways. So we're trying to 
integrated into our day-to-day. So make sure that our lawyers and our professionals understand that that kind of client-focused mindset is something they should be integrating into their everyday work. But then the other layer of that is we have an internal accelerator that's based around a VC model. And what that does is it provides investment funds to some of our more ambitious service design projects that meet kind of certain criteria. So things like they need to be user-experience-focused, they've got to be data-driven and scalable and client-facing. Um, and then they also actually have to help us push our diversity agenda. So what we do is we put these projects through a guided design thinking process. They do multiple rounds of research interviews. They map client needs. They elicit and develop ideas. And then they prototype uh, and test concepts for new services. And that's, and that's done in a co-creative way with the client. So the clients are very much involved in that process from day one. And there's been a couple of fairly successful projects that we've had that have come out of that. So one I can mention is around kind of future mobility. So we've actually done a lot of work in that space for a while. So for many years, we've been advising clients in the transport uh, and telecommunications industries for connected cars and systems associated with those kind of early stages of automation. And then we've already put out various resources around driverless vehicles, but then now we've got our global technology and automotive teams looking at what's next. You know, what kind of insights and solutions will clients in that industry need as the technology evolves? Uh, And then another one we've got going now is about reimagining the way that we manage our clients' global IP portfolio. So we've been a global leader in that space for many years. Um, we kind of pioneered things like our global IP services centers and our global IP manager database. And that was really about listening to clients' needs and building things that were responsive to that. But now we're doing that in a more structured way. We're looking very intently at the tools we use, the talent we use, so we can try and bring things to the next level again and, and continue to set the bar, hopefully. Great, great. So I promise we're going to talk about your article on AI, but I wanted to ask just one other question about the engagement with the ecosystem. You mentioned yeah. different players you're working with. I mean, can you just tell us, like, like, how are you doing that right now? How are you engaging with this ecosystem and legal tech hubs? Yeah, so the ecosystem engagement piece is, is probably one of the most important pillars of our R&D program. And it feeds into all of those three phases, all of those three time slots. But it's particularly important for that longer term, more expansive thinking around what the law firm and the legal industry of the future will look like. Um, And so the core investment here is to launch and to partner with collaborative hubs in key regions. So for instance, we've We've had this long-standing partnership with the World Economic Forum, and we've deepened that. We've became the, the founding law partner for its Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in San Francisco. So we have this ongoing six-month secondment of our brightest talent there, and what they do is they go in and they, they help co-design and pilot new approaches to policy and governments um, and explore legal questions around things like AI, bots, and blockchain, drones, and, and Internet of Things. And then another really good example of our hubs is reInvent in Germany. So this was Europe's first legal innovation hub. And the really interesting thing about reInvent is that it's not just about us. 
And I actually think that's one of the reasons it's been so effective. Uh, it's based in Frankfurt. And what it is, is it's a partnership with a couple of universities, four or five corporate clients, uh, and then several legal tech startups. And we've been open maybe a year. And the connections and the collaborations that have developed are staggering, particularly as, you know, a lot of those founding entities had no connection before we started it up. Um, and we actually have a great visual that shows all of the lines intersecting among the different entities. And not all of them actually go through us. Some of them do, but not all of them. And what we're seeing is this really great organic generation of relationships, particularly um, around the startup community and the, and the corporates. And that, in turn, is triggering massive cultural change in those entities, which is also quite interesting given that Germany is, is sometimes seen as quite a conservative market. So what we're doing is we're, we're studying all of this. We're exploring how it happens and we're kind of thinking, can we replicate it elsewhere? The other thing that's been really important for this ecosystem engagement is activating our base. So we were talking earlier about my role as an innovation champion um, and innovation ambassador. Uh, so this ambassadors program kind of comes into play with these hubs. Uh, and all of our associates in Germany, for instance, have a budget of, I think it's about 5,000 euros a year that they can spend with the reInvent startups. And the idea there is, is to say to them, here's a little bit of budget. It's not much, but, uh, but go play and see if you can figure out something that improves what we do or that can benefit our clients. And that's led to some really productive engagements with some of the startups, for instance. Yeah, it is really exciting to see these different hubs um, developing and to see the collaborations happening, which I think is so important to changing the culture across the ecosystem, uh, as, you, as you pointed out. So I promise we're going to jump into artificial intelligence. But first, before we continue our interview with Daniel Beneke, we're going to take a quick break to hear messages from our sponsors. Hey, law firms, getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter HeadNote, an industry-compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their blend of features cuts through the noise for a faster payment cycle. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Find out how to get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Thomson Reuters Westlaw Edge is an intelligent legal research platform powered by state-of-the-art artificial intelligence. Westlaw Edge delivers fast answers and valuable insights, providing you with a strategic advantage. The advanced features on Westlaw Edge allow legal professionals to practice with a greater degree of certainty and confidence. Visit westlawedge.com to learn more. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Danielle Beneke, a lawyer at Baker McKenzie. And Danielle, I wanted to focus a little bit on artificial intelligence. And, and you recently wrote an article about its impact and the future impact on the work that lawyers will do. And I, I really like the way that you set this up. And, and I, I was really impressed the talk you gave at the Codex talk, because I mean, just what you were willing to share about the law firm's uh, long-term strategy and your thinking about it, I thought was, was really interesting. Uh, and you know, in this article that you wrote, you talked about lawyers sell four key things, 
information, labor, prediction, and judgment. And, you know, sometimes I hear these discussions about it. And one of the things lawyers will frequently say is like, well, my judgment is never going to be impacted by these tools. And, you know, I really like the way you thought about this arc, those kind of four areas. But can you kind of tell us how, how you're thinking you and, and your, your colleagues at Baker McKenzie are thinking about how AI will impact each of those areas, information, labor, prediction, and judgment? Yeah, sure. Um, so that that piece we did for Thomson Reuters, um, and I actually co-wrote it with Ben Elgrove, who's a partner in our London office, who heads up our global R&D team, and who also heads up our global IP tech practice. And the piece actually came of that, out of that Stanford talk too, actually. So David Curl, who is director of Thomson Reuters Technology and Innovation Platform, approached um, us after and kind of commented on how different and maybe a little bit sophisticated, our take was um, on the market shifts going on as compared with other firms. So we asked to kind of crystallize some of that um, for their legal executive readers. So what we really did was to draw together some of the thought leadership we've been putting out and then some of the high-level concepts from some of the discussions we've had with clients. And the idea was to take a look at some of that market hype around artificial intelligence and the law, and then share our take on what we think is really happening. Uh, and the overall thesis was that machine learning and other types of AI are, are really promising technologies and already impacting the practice of law and certainly what we're doing. You know, we've been baking them into things like MA due diligence and e-discovery investigations and regulatory horizon scanning as well. But when it comes to that bigger picture thinking around AI in the legal industry, our view is that we should really be focusing on how it enhances the core of what we do as lawyers, which is to be a trusted advisor for our clients. Uh, and that applies to both in-house lawyers and firm lawyers. You know, I, I think in both those types of relationships with clients, trust is at the very core. So when we're thinking about how do we as lawyers and firms deploy AI and how do we control it as well, the question that we think we should be asking is really around what does it actually mean to be a trusted advisor in an AI-enabled world? Um, so what we did with that article is we unpacked that a little bit. And as you said, we kind of looked at the key elements of what lawyers provide, both in-house and outside counsel. And from the beginning of the profession, that's really been four key things, which is the information, labor, prediction, and judgment. So into the first three of those, so the information, labor, and prediction, we think AI will make and is already making fairly significant inroads. So on the information front, for example, you're seeing all sorts of nascent machine learning and things like automated precedents and self-serve apps. And then that in turn has knock-on effects for the labor piece. And so that's just not in terms of efficiency, but in that really kind of in that richness of the talent pool that we're drawing from. So for many years in our firm, we've had our attorneys work and our paralegals work augmented by economists, project managers, knowledge specialists. But now we're increasingly tapping into the experience and expertise of data analysts and visualizers, service designers, UX specialists, other non-legal advisors. And then if you look at that prediction element, that's still delivered, we think, in a largely lawyer-based way. But we're seeing some very specific vertical prediction engines emerge for very specific defined tasks. And a good example of this might be um, the legal analytics and insights that a tool like Lex Machina, for instance, might provide on mine litigation data. Uh, 
And so what we said in the article is that we think this is all part of a process that's transforming what has historically been a very individual, so lawyer-to-lawyer experience, into a much richer organizational one. And the really exciting part about that for our clients and, and also for us too is that they won't just be benefiting from what we and our attorneys know and what we've done, but from this range of legal and non-legal data and insights from within the firm and outside of the firm. And then the next kind of part of the article was really about looking at, well, if information, labor, and prediction fall away from what we do as lawyers, then we're left with judgment. Um, And so we dug a little bit into what that might look like because judgment is really the challenge that's often talked about when it comes to lawyers and AI. When a client asks us, what is the law? What they're really asking us is, what should I do? And answering that requires knowledge of much more than what the law says. You need the context. You need context of the law within that wider view of the client, of the market, of society. And that's really hard to replicate when it, when it comes to AI. So this narrow AI that, that we are baking into some of our services right now enables us to automate information systems and tasks. It it increases our predictive powers, uh, giving us data-validated insights. And all of this informs our judgment, but it doesn't replace judgment itself. Um, It doesn't tell the client what they should do. And our view is that that's going to be true for most applications of AI and big law in in the near kind of three to five year future. But for the firms and the lawyers who can find really powerful ways to use AI to augment that judgment, we think the future is looking really interesting and really bright. And then the phrase that we're using to describe that vision of the future is machine learning enabled judgment. So in a nutshell, that's what we as a law firm of the future are working to ultimately deliver to our clients. Yeah, I think this is a really helpful framework. And again, I think when lawyers talk about this sometimes, think like, well, so much what I do is my judgment that can't be replaced by these machines. And thinking about, well, where are the areas that are really just prediction versus judgment? I mean, uh, multiple times when I've landed at, at the airport in San Francisco and I say I'm going to Palo Alto, I'll even have Ubers that'll say like, well, do you want to use the 280 or, or the 101? And and it's like, well, I'm not really interested in your judgment or picking one, just use ways use the data and whatever way says that's what we'll do. Right. And I think that's like a nice analogy for, well, what are the things that we do for clients that when we have more data, it's really just a matter of predicting the direction we go. And that's what we go versus, you know, how do we really get sharper about when is it that the lawyer judgment really adds value? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when we're talking about this, I think what's really important to note is that you know, this is something that we're really working on because there's certainly some legal industry challenges that we need to overcome in, in, in realizing its potential for AI too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about some of those challenges. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a few foundational reasons why we're not there yet and also why others are mm-hmm. not there yet. And one of the biggest challenges is that those evolving AI capabilities that we want to take advantage of only exist at scale in the cloud. Uh, And there are obvious legal obstacles and attitudinal obstacles to putting client data there. There are all sorts of bar rules on this globally. um, 
And understandably, there's a level of discomfort from the clients too, even cloud provider clients in our experience. So you know, we definitely need to appreciate and respect and work within uh, those parameters. But then there's also that opportunity to have a really good conversation around how different cloud models and approaches can enhance what we do to enable us to do really good work. So if the legal industry and our clients want us, their trusted advisors, to be supercharged, then I think we all need to accept that AI systems are going to learn more, they're going to deliver more value if we can feed them a lot more good data. The other issue that we grapple with is the fragmentation and also the varying degrees of quality and quantity of legal data. So at our last count, I think we have about 200 separate legal systems to contend with globally, uh, and that doesn't include state systems. So the source data is split, and it's structured in different ways, and in some countries, it only exists on paper. So even to take one example, even kind of looking at larger, more advanced legal markets, you look at the U.S., uh, where there is thousands of patent cases filed each year, and that provides a really nice data set from which there are several good pieces of AI on the market that can analyze and help us try and predict the outcomes of U.S. patent litigation. But then if you look at the U.K., which at last check is the third biggest patent litigation market in the world, it has comparatively fewer published cases, I think only about 80 um, at last check. And then you have Germany, which is the second biggest, and that's even a worse data source because most cases aren't published there. So these are kind of challenges, even in those kind of larger, more advanced legal markets. And then now when you look at Bacon McKenzie as well, I mean, our second office in the world was Caracas. And then we, we managed IP all over the world, you know, in places like Nepal. And so when you get into places like that, the data becomes a lot sparser and a lot messier as well. And so for us as a global firm, so right now we have about, we have 78 offices in 46 markets those challenges are really acute. And so we're doing a lot of work internally to try and come up with different solutions. So for the cloud issue, we're looking at different encryption models, and then we have bigger, longer-term projects to try and get the enormous amount of know-how that we have all structured and in one place. And I think by definition, we could well have the most know-how data of any law firm. So it's an extremely important project for us, but a really exciting one too. But then the other layer for these kind of issues around, around the cloud and around fragmentation of legal data is that these are systemic. You know, they're really collective problems requiring collective problem solving. So we're trying to draw in the full range of legal, technical, regulatory, academic expertise. And that's where things like our hubs come in, you know, which really help us engage with the ecosystem on these issues. Yeah, your article also talked about the need for allied professionals to help solve these problems. So what kind of allied professionals are you seeing enter the marketplace that you think are critical to solving these problems? And then I think a related question is the extent to which lawyers need to arm themselves with a new set of skills in this new service delivery regime. Yes. So I mentioned a few of these earlier, so project managers, knowledge specialists, data analysts and visualizers, service designers, user experience specialists. We, in particular, have been doing a lot of work to try and build up our project management team. So I mentioned David and Casey earlier, um, and Jay's, who's doing a lot of work on pricing. And I think bringing in these really great minds who can add new perspectives has been really important for us. 
And then on the knowledge front, a lot of our industry groups and practice groups are hiring increasing numbers of knowledge specialists to really kind of build and feed into our know-how projects like Harmony, which is our global project to gather up all of our valuable know-how and have it in one place. So that, in effect, is really building our Baker McKenzie brain, which in future we will hopefully increasingly leverage as those AI capabilities develop. So what about when we think about law schools and, uh, you know, actually right now we're in the middle of the Institute for the Future of Law Practice, boot camps, right? We have this hypothesis that we need to train more T-shaped lawyers. You know, I think that, uh, you know, what kind of things do you think law schools ought to be doing to prepare lawyers for the future, um, including lawyers that would be attractive hires into Baker McKenzie? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the education piece was really important. Um, and right now we're doing a lot of work internally to try and fill the gap. Um, but there is a lot of law schools in the U.S. and globally that are doing really great work, you know, integrating more interdisciplinary perspectives in their programming, bringing in technology opportunities for um, legal students to develop technology skills, and also design thinking programming as well. So, um, for instance, back when I was at Stanford, uh, their legal design lab had just been developed, which was this you know fantastic pioneering initiative by Margaret Hagen over there, which kind of gave lawyers the opportunity to work on real client challenges with students from the computer science departments, from with business school students. And so you really have that experience of kind of collaborative interdisciplinary work. Um, and I think the direction of practice is very much going in that direction. And so I think that kind of law school program is going to be really helpful in developing that base skill set for law firms that really want to push that type of innovation initiative. The other thing as well, um, when it comes to preparing law students for real world practice is mindset. And I think that's where the design, you know, that design thinking stuff really comes into having that kind of user-centered, client-focused approach rather than a capabilities-oriented one. Yeah, so a related question that I would ask about this, I have students who ask me all the time, students who especially who are developing some of these uh, skills, like how can they go into a law firm, or maybe even part of it might be choosing the right law firm, but even if they land at an innovative place like Baker McKenzie, like what kind of advice would you give to students who are really interested in this space and, you know, how do they get engaged kind of like you are in the firm at, at a pretty early point still in your career where you're, you're really at the intersection of doing some really interesting things? What advice would you give to those law students and people who are early on in their career? Yeah. So, I mean, I would tell them to do what you love, do it because it's interesting. The other piece would be to look for emerging issues in particular that you find interesting. So, for instance, right now, a lot of our clients are grappling with the use and development of artificial intelligence technologies, but that's something that's also impacting the profession. So I'm doing a lot of work in that space and I have colleagues who are doing work in that space and that's been really helpful for helping our clients and our colleagues look around corners and being proactive. And then the third bit would be to just remember that it's always about the client, it's always about their needs and having that mindset. And just a quick follow-up, Danielle, what do you think students should be looking for when they're looking at law firms? So I, I would say opportunities to make valuable impact. So for example, 
the Innovation Ambassadors Program I mentioned earlier that ties into our overall innovation strategy. It's, it's one of our core programs to try and activate our base to do things differently. And I think one of the most interesting parts of that is that it's a fully opt-in model. So no one's asked to do it. No one's invited to be part of it. We don't even do anything specific to publicize it. People just find out about it and they join. They self-identify as being interested. And so these are people who are young, motivated, talented, you know, the, the already doing it of the bunch. And so we give them that opportunity to be part of that movement, to be part of that conversation at the global scale. So it's a critical piece for us in terms of culture change, but it's also an incredible opportunity for them too. And then we take a few of these ambassadors and we send them to our global and regional partners meetings. And we put them right in the center of the meeting where you need to get registered and get the good coffee too, where the partners work and meet with colleagues or have a drink at the end of the day. And then the ambassadors are wearing these kind of t-shirts and hoodies emblazoned with things like future proof or good lawyer is, is not good enough. And they're giving out badges saying, I eat change for breakfast and old dogs need tricks. And they're doing demos and sharing success stories. And the partners can't help but curious about what's going on. And so these, you know, there are opportunities like this where they can really engage and affect change at a fairly early stage in their career. And the exciting part is that there is real concrete work that is being germinated out of this and that directly benefits our clients. So my advice would be to look for opportunities like that. You Be passionate about, about what you do. Look for things that you find interesting and then find opportunities to make impact. Thank you, Danielle. This has been great. And for our listeners who would like to be able to follow up with you, can you let them know a little bit about your social media platforms and how else to get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can visit baconmckenzie.com or you could also follow Bacon McKenzie on Twitter. Great. Well, thank you, Danielle. And this has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.